standard issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Now then, I'm going to get straight to it. I can only hope you enjoy listening to me chat with writer Melissa Phoebos as much as I enjoyed talking to her, which was loads. Melissa's latest book is called Girlhood, and it is a collection of eight personal essays examining what it means to come as age as a woman and how the hell we stop landing girls with baggage they'll carry with them for life. Prepare yourself for some big talk. This is Fundamental Reading. It's smart, radical, thoughtful, fierce and lyrical feminism. This is genuinely a book I intend to press into the hands of all of my female friends. I am already excited to buy it for my niece and she's not even one yet. Told you to prep for some big talk, but I am pretty confident you will feel the same way. Before we get to Melissa, I've not done this for ages, but while I've got you, if you're not already subscribed, please do smash the subscribe button on your podcast listening platform of choice. Also, if you've got a spare couple of minutes and fancy doing as a solid, and this would be a solid for all of your favourite podcasts, rating and reviewing us on that aforementioned podcast platform is really, really helpful. So we'd be much obliged. If you've already given us five stars, just, just a suggestion, but you know, a good one, and some love, I thank you very much. Until next time. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by writer Melissa Phoebos, whose latest book, Girlhood, is a collection of eight personal essays examining what it means to come of age as a woman. Listeners, I have been nodding along so furiously I've given myself whiplash. Melissa, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. How's Brooklyn looking today? I'm actually on Cape Cod in Massachusetts right now, and it is quite lovely here today. Very sunny. The ocean looks gorgeous. I'm very happy not to be in Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) My copy of your beautiful, fierce, important book is dogged to fuck because you cover a lot of territory on what it means to be a woman in the world. But I am going to start, perhaps oddly, with cuddle parties. Talk Mm. to me Mm -hmm. about the importance (laughs) of cuddle parties, please. Not a question that I ever foresaw anyone asking me or myself having any kind of answer to, but that is the journey of writing. Yeah. So when a friend, a friend sent me a link to something called a cuddle party and I had such a deep cringe inside myself, like such a deep and profound cringe at those with that coupling of words, cuddle party, that I thought, why would that be so repellent to me? And I mean, this will tell you maybe everything you need to know about my personality that I was like, that sounds awful. I must go. (laughs) And so I went and I brought my then girlfriend and, and my friend who suggested it. And we went to this thing called the cuddle party, which turned out to be in some ways, exactly what it sounded like, which is basically a cuddle orgy. Uh, Such an <laughs> also odd concept. Fringe, but but also the the first half of it was basically a sort of workshop in affirmative consent, where we did sort of role play with just the person next to us and really sort of practiced ongoing enthusiastic affirmative consent. And then there was sort of like an open cuddle portion at the end of this event. I got in the car with my girlfriend and my friend and I was like, how was that for you all? And they were both like, that was amazing. I had a really good time. And I was like, that's interesting because I had a horrible time. Mm -hmm. I hated it. And that basically sent me on this sort of mission to kind of figure out ultimately what it was that inspired me to cuddle with people that I didn't want to because that's what happened at the cuddle party and that's why I felt so bad that I ended up cuddling with people despite the workshop 
cuddling with folks that I didn't want to at all. And so I went back on this sort of, it was like a detective story kind of into my own history, into American history, into other people's lives and, and really sort of answered that question for myself. So that essay is called Thanks for Taking Care of Yourself and it is really wide roaming. Just going back to the cuddle workshop rules, I feel like Mm -hmm. if the cuddle party rules were taught to kids, a lot Mm -hmm. of essays in your Mm -hmm. book, which don't get me wrong, are incredibly necessary, would not have been necessary. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, which is why the essays in that book, you know, I didn't even think when I went to the cuddle party, I never imagined I would write the essay that I did. But when I was about halfway through it, I thought, oh, of course, there are threads of every other thing I've written about in this book here. Um, And I'm really, you know, I felt like I had to write the first few essays to get down to that kind of granular level of like, what are the invisible dynamics at work that prompt me to offer my physical touch and my body to total strangers rather than avoid the discomfort of disappointing them you know like how did I get there Mm -hmm. (laughs) right I don't think I would have gotten there I think you're absolutely right if um if I'd been given that kind of language if all of us were you know because I think now I'm hoping that sex education in schools is better than it was when I was coming of age but we certainly weren't talking about consent at all certainly not talking about like our own bodily sovereignty or even female pleasure like none of that was even on the map Right. I think there's still a lot of work to do there, but the conversations have started and that is so important. Okay, I've said the phrase cuddle party way more than I ever thought I would do. So. It sounds much more elegant coming out of your mouth than it does out of mine. Oh, not to my ears. Absolutely not to my ears. So I would like to know, because I do think that essay almost answers this question, but what made you write Girlhood? How did it come about? Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I think sometimes people write books and they have an idea and they think I'm going to write a book about this. And that is not my experience, (laughs) least of all with this book. Um, (laughs) I've, I've had that experience in the past, but with this book, I think this subject matter is so fundamental to my experience as a human being and so insidious and I'm really sort of daunting as a topic because like what's I don't really have a solution to it right Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and so I don't think I was comfortable admitting to myself at the outset of the process that this was the book I was writing I was just telling myself I'm gonna write this one essay I'm gonna write about this one experience of this creepy peeping Tom I'm gonna write about this cuddle party and then it wasn't until I had about six or seven of the essays when I thought oh no I just keep coming back mm-hmm. to sort of this primary material. And I think that's that's what the book is. You know, the prospect of sort of going back to your most confounding, painful experiences about which, you know, I've been trying to tell myself a certain kind of story or minimize to go back and dredge those up and really look at them and not exactly have an answer for how to change the social dynamics at work that that made them possible is not a, an appealing prospect. You no. know? It's a, <laughs> even though it's a very rewarding exercise to have done, I, I think I had to sort of hide from it for a while when I was writing it. Um, although now I can see how how important it is to me and and how much I was also sort of working my way towards it for my whole career up until this point. Well, you talk in the book about how writing allows you to not only find new meaning when you retread stuff that has happened to you, but also to heal. And shit Mm -hmm. me, girlhood must have been one hell of a healing process. (laughs) 
It really was. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, it really, you know, I really, an, another thing that I do, and this is really weird and I'm just relentless, is um, whenever I sit down to write an essay, I think, you know, this is going to be different than everything else I've ever written. This is going to be a lighthearted, comedic, whimsical, very short essay. <laughs> and I end up like, you know, many of the essays in the book are like 30, 40, 50. 60 pages long. Um, that is not what I do when I sit down to write typically, but it was incredibly powerful, like uh, more so than anything else I've ever written. I think I really sat down at the beginning of each of these essays and at the end of them um, was a slightly different person. Two of the big themes that jumped out at me, there's first of all, that realization in a girl's life, in a woman's life, where, whenever it happens, when you figure out it is okay to say no, it's powerful mm -hmm. to say no, it is your right mm -hmm. to say no. But what mm -hmm. you explore so brilliantly in several of the essays is how knowing that you can say no doesn't make it easy to do so. I mean, far mm -hmm. from that. Mm -hmm. And that's something that comes up early in the book, in your essay, The Mirror Test, you write, they told us to say no to so many things, but never how. Mm -hmm. And that is just so key, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, um, you know, because I don't know what was going on in the UK, but it was very, you know, when uh, during the first Bush presidency here, it was the just say no to drugs campaign. And there was the DARE program in schools where they, it was all just say no, just say no. And I feel like that was a similar message in terms of sex, where it was like, just say no. Uh -huh. Boys are lecherous and they can't control themselves just say no you know um but there was no acknowledgement of this tidal wave of of counter conditioning that is like teaching us to say yes to everything all the time from sort of as an adult like having coffee with someone who wants to pick my brain or um you know helping someone move or letting someone feel me up or what you know what I mean all of those things so in the moment um and I still see this at work in some of my interactions but particularly when I was a, you know an adolescent like that moment where you know the just say no idea sort of would have me think oh no I don't want to do that I can say no I just skip straight over that part because my own desires are so far down the hierarchy of my concerns in that moment it doesn't even occur to me you know, um, I still like now it feels like one of my primary sort of uh, tasks in life in terms of personal growth is actually saying no to sort of work things. And so often what I end up doing is saying yes and then doubling back sometimes the same day and being like, you know what, actually, it's just not realistic. I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm not available. You know what I mean? Because my uh -huh. first instinct, the yes comes out of my mouth before I even have time to register what it is that's being asked of me. It's so automatic. And yeah. so, yeah, it took me until I was like deep into adulthood to be able to do that physically, sexually with partners, even partners who like were interested in the truth. It just, it took me a long time to even be aware of what it was I actually wanted. I think one of the phrases I have said most on this feminist podcast is that from a very very early age girls women are raised to be people pleasers undoing right. that is mm -hmm. so hard and then you add into that that men boys and men are conditioned to just take whatever they want and not take yep. no for an answer 
And it's yeah. only now in 2021 that we're learning properly about consent. And it's such a tiny mm-hmm. conversation that needs to get bigger and louder. And it's it's yeah. almost it's almost impossible. And you're right. If, if it's, you find it hard to say no to meeting someone for a drink when your pants are off and you've decided actually you've changed your mind and you're 14, mm-hmm. 15, 16, whatever, 44 in my case. It's so, so hard to go mm-hmm. back on that. It really is. It really is. And I just, you know, and I don't know that I'll ever be able to sort of uninstall that awareness, that sensor, that terror that I feel at disappointing another person. Mm -hmm. You know, what I can do is create a little bit of space between the feeling and my own actions so that I don't have to make decisions or, or behave in a way that's absolutely loyal to that response but it's so deep it's just you know the idea of upsetting someone else or disappointing them or breaking whatever invisible contract I think I've signed by taking my pants off or whatever it is by saying yes it's so I I mean it just goes back further than memory you know it's a really deep conditioning and I think it ties intrinsically in with the other theme that comes up again and again and again and you have coined the phrase empty consent which was a real whiplash moment for me when I was like oh yes yes Mm -hmm. so please could you explain it to the listeners sure so when I was um, researching the essay for the cuddle party I sort of went back through my own history and really looked at all of those early sexual experiences where if it had occurred to me if it had felt possible I would have said no but it didn't and so I didn't then I started talking to other women and this experience of saying yes when our body said no when our spirit said no came up so often that I, I it started to just feel cumbersome to say saying yes when our bodies meant no you know like just uh-huh. describing it over and over and over and trying to find new ways to describe it I was like oh I need a word I need a name for this experience um, because it's so unbelievable, shockingly ordinary, you know? And the term I came up with was empty consent, where it was just consent that is ambivalent or totally unenthusiastic, where there's no desire behind it except the desire to please. And I'd add to that the desire for safety. Sometimes you just think, actually, I don't want this situation to escalate, so I'll just play along Mm -hmm. with it. I don't think I know any of my female friends who haven't just gone along with something because it felt safer or easier. And I don't mean that in a lazy fuckers. I just mean in a kind of, I I don't know how to get out of this without becoming really complicated. Okay, I'll just, I'll just switch off. I'll just freeze. I'll just take myself out of my own body, which are all phrases I've used myself and I've heard my friends say. Me too. Me too. And then I talked to all of these women because there's always this sort of question I had and I've had it since I was growing up. Like, is it just, is it just me? Is it just me and my friends or is it everyone, <laughs> you know, or is it like a lot of everyone, a very large percentage of everyone? Because even as a kid, I think I recognized the discrepancy between the cultural narrative of like what's normal and what we see in movies and like what my actual experience was and what was the experience of the girls and women that I knew. And I thought, is it just that all of the girls and women that I know have had, have experienced what I now have called empty consent or been assaulted or, you know, it's just like, or is it, is it all a lie? And this is actually what's ordinary. And unfortunately, I think that that's actually the truth. Because now I've talked to tons of women who are not even my friends, total strangers, and they all 
just like you um, described exactly those feelings of thinking, well, it's much easier for me to just vacate my body than it would be for me to actually leave this situation or extricate myself. I really liked the phrase that one of the women you spoke to said, oh yeah, when that happened, you've had a patriarchy attack, like a panic attack. <laughs> that's, oh. that's a good friend of mine, yeah. It's a patriarchy attack. Yeah, it just it just took over and you weren't making, you weren't in the driver's seat. It was just the patriarchy in the driver's seat for a little while. Yeah. Because that culture, yep. and you, you absolutely touch on this in, like you reference various books and various films throughout Girlhood. Mm-hmm. And you, you totally touch on this in the Peeping Tom slash stalking chapter. And mm-hmm. that is, we are sold that this attention is a compliment Mm -hmm. and therefore Mm -hmm. there is something wrong with you if you don't accept it as a compliment right right I know and there's I think one of the sort of primary conflicts of my entire life has been the difference between sort of what I know intellectually like I know that what you just described is incredibly fucked up (laughs) and wrong and it still does not immunize me from it like it does not root it out of my mind like it's And that is a kind of madness that I think, you know, probably a majority of people on this earth have to live with. All of us probably have to live with that cognitive dissonance, right? Totally. And there's there's another brilliant line that one of your friends, I think maybe your girlfriend, whispers to you and she just goes, are you doing some unnecessary (laughs) emotional labor? And I work myself (laughs) laughing because like, what? it's horrible. I'm laughing and it is horrible. But I I talk about this shit every single day for a living and I I still find myself in that situation way too many times. I know. And so many people have brought that line up to me and been like, where is she when I need her to be like, excuse me, (laughs) pardon me. Are you doing any unnecessary emotional labor right now? It's like, oh, if there's merchandise to go along with the book, uh, Melissa, then you just need to sit on my shoulder. That's a really good idea. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just little business cards you can just hand out to women in the street as you're walking by. (laughs) I think we'd all take them. We'd all take them. Becoming a woman is key throughout the book. It's what the book's about. Two essays that work really, really nicely together. It all works really nicely together. Is that the mirror test examines that period when girls move from subject to object. And that includes in our own minds. And Mm -hmm. Wild America, which is the essay that follows next, covers how girls and women are taught and retaught to not only tame but be utterly disgusted by our animal nature now i am Mm -hmm. 44 and i still have a very complicated relationship with my body how i see my body how i worry about other people seeing my body even those closest to me and it is i'm tired melissa i am exhausted by it (laughs) me too i know um yeah i don't even know what to say it's um this is maybe like the deepest oldest one right you know it was like even like you know my wife and I again I've, that's like the third time I've said that it's still novel uh we got Melissa married and last... I are newlyweds <laughs> so it feels very strange <laughs> yeah we got married last Friday and we before like the day of our elopement you know we were getting dressed and I was like ah oh. and she was like what and I was like I just don't feel good about I'm kind of bloated I ate too much last night like I have this like horrible embarrassing script in my head that's like you should have been doing 
bridal boot camp or been on some crazy diet. You should have been starving yourself uh-huh. for the last three months. Like, what are you doing? You just look regular in your dress. Um, and, and it's this little sort of like echo chamber because I'm like, that's absurd. I don't even want to, I can't believe I just even admitted it to you. <laughs> I know better. Right. But it's still there. I was like on the day of my wedding, trying on the dress I was wearing. And I was like, oh, my belly's poking out, you know, <laughs> and it just doesn't, and here we are, like two women getting totally unconventional, and and it's just the script is like running in the background. Do you know what I mean? It's well, still in we there. know it's very important to look exactly like those magazine covers. Come I on know. now, yeah. I know it was. I was talking to a friend of mine actually, and she uh, said that she had a similar experience, and she was like, you know, I just kept reminding myself, I don't want to have a weird fetishistic relationship to my wedding photos and look back and be like, oh, I'll never look that, use it to shame myself because that's not actually what I look like. And I was like, that's really good. Yes. A really good reminder. I want to look back and be like, oh, there's me on a really happy day. You know, exactly that. Instead exactly of that. like a tool for self-abasement or whatever. But it's, it is amazing to me the resiliency of that idea. It was just like, we get brainwashed so young there's it's like very very formative like as little children i am glad that to a greater extent than ever before in my life i am free of it a lot of the time i am not thinking bad thoughts about my body but it still happens like most days at some point you know yeah i'd say like at least once a day i'd need to push the button on the bit of kit that you're going to send me and have someone go are you doing any unnecessarily <laughs> <I know. laughs> and I i'd be like yes i am Yes. I know. Yeah. I can't remember if I ended up putting this in the book or not, or if I wrote it somewhere else. But I remember talking about the body stuff with my partner once and just about how tenacious, just the little voice that still pops up after all these years, you know, in my 40s. And she suggested this, that I write. I do little morning pages in my journal every morning. And at the very end, I write a little series of sort of affirmations. And one of them is, today I reject the patriarchy's bad ideas. Because I was like, I need a (laughs) reminder every day. So first thing in the morning, I'm like, all right. And that's really about the body stuff mostly, where it's like, today, when I look in the mirror, if I look in the mirror, I'm not going to do that thing because that's not me. It's just this little horrible voice that was implanted in me as a child and it's not actually my thought like Uh I'm healthy and and I'm fortunate in that and there is no way that my life is served or the people that I love are served by me feeling shame about my perfectly excellent body it's a it's another full-time job given to us by the patriarchy to keep us distracted (laughs) exactly one of the ways you've dealt with this is to pay it forward and you get your students to pen a love letter to the part of their Mm -hmm. body they have the most fraught relationship with Mm -hmm. i bet they've been pretty heartbreaking they are they are yeah but mostly you know it's funny because you think we spend so little time in i'm this is like the big we it's just we we don't talk about body shame like it's not a part of the regular conversation or it hasn't been for for most of my life in our society and so i think when i first started doing that exercise and exercises like it with my students i i imagined that they would be more resistant than they are you know like write about the part of your body about which you've basically felt the most shame you know in front of these other people and they're so ready. Like we are so, I really do think that people are pretty programmed more biologically to, to love and accept and to be vulnerable and have intimacy and 
like form real partnerships and community with other people because the second I ask them, it's like, oh no. And then they start writing like crazy and they're writing, writing, writing. And they want to read them in front of each other, most of them, you know? And so it ends up actually being this really, I mean, like heartbroken certainly in a way, but more than that, it just feels like I feel so close to them, you know? And it just feels like a space it feels protected after that because you can't sort of witness and share your own vulnerability and not have reverence for other people and their humanity. You know, it's just like not as possible. Well, I think we saw that across social media when women came together for, mm-hmm. for Me Too. Mm-hmm. And in mm-hmm. the UK, there was the murder of a young woman recently and mm-hmm. just people coming forward and talking, mm-hmm. women coming forward and talking about their experiences. And mm-hmm. we're, we're taught again to bury it and you get a lot of cynics and I'm going to call them wankers saying, well, you know, if it really <laughs> you know, did happen. cynics happened. or what's the word? <laughs> wankers. <laughs> Look, we can only have one beautiful writer on this podcast at a time, and I'm afraid that's you today. But yeah, all these wankers come in and just going, oh, well, you know, if it really happened, you'd have talked about it years ago. And it's like, no, that's not what women are taught to do. We're taught to, like, tamp that down. Otherwise, how the fuck will we get out of bed every morning? How would we keep going? I know. I know. Absolutely. You know, and I do think, I mean, and that was, you know, a lot of the women I talked to when I was writing my book, because I was sort of started it before all the Me Too, and then was still writing it after that. And there's so many of the women I talked to said, oh, I thought it was just me. And then me too. And I was like, wait a minute, this is like everyone and it's not okay, you know? And and that was part of what had made them feel more willing to talk to me. So I, I do think there's so much power. It's the beginning of like every sort of radical revolutionary action or social change has to do with those kinds of intimate revelations about people's experiences and that community that feeling of Mm -hmm. even if it's as far as it goes that weight is a little bit lifted you're not on your own it's so important a sort of cuddle party i suppose yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it is it really is I'm going to talk about an essay that is is still it's very deep and it has sadness in it but I I will add to the listeners that they are beautifully written and there's humor in there and they are so readable but one of my favorite essays is actually Thesmorphia where you talk about mother-daughter relationships and that Mm -hmm. inherent trickiness of big love and big pain both of which Mm -hmm. are unavoidable Mm -hmm. yeah I I didn't know that this essay was going to be, I had written it and I wasn't sure if it was part of this book or not. Um, And then it just seemed so obvious to me after I had finished most of the other essays. And, and, you know, now when I think about it and when I talk to people, it actually comes up a lot because, you know, in writing about the other experiences that I, that I did in this book, I, I think sometimes people wouldn't necessarily assume that I had this really close, loving relationship with my mother, that there had to be, I mean, and I thought this too, like, oh, something must be wrong with me because something bad happens to people who have, like, makes the choices that I, that I have or becomes a sex worker, or drug addict, or uh, experiences all of these sort of micro traumas or whatever. But actually, no, it's just the society that I live in mm-hmm. that is abusive. It was not the home that I grew up in, you know? Um, and while those things can interact, it's not, a, it's not a causal relationship that actually I had this really complicated, powerful first relationship that in the end, I think, taught me a lot of resilience that helped me write this book ultimately it's such a a hard 
relationship and obviously uh, I'm going to do the caveat that for some people their relationships with their mum are difficult or absent Mm -hmm. or they've Mm -hmm. lost their mum when they were really young or when they were older and so they don't have a mum for whatever reason I don't have a dad for that kind Mm -hmm. of reason but Mm -hmm. my relationship with my mum was so intense when there was just the two Mm -hmm. of us that breaking away feels even harder but it has to happen and actually your mum I always say that my mum Anne I love her dearly she's amazing but she is both the best and the worst feminist ever (laughs) she would not call herself a feminist but she had to do so much on her own that she she had to be basically but the stuff that your mum taught you your mum actually was like you don't have to say yes she was properly there going these are your rights and we just don't fucking listen when we're that age yeah Maybe some people do. I'm holding out that it's possible <laughs> there are some people who just take their mother's advice and, and things go better for them. But that is not my story. And I don't actually know who that person is. Um, <laughs> but I also just think it's like one one woman is not enough. Like there's so many, there's so much out there. You can't, it, like one voice can't counter all of the other voices, right? But it, But it was in there. It was in there. And... I do feel sort of spectacularly lucky to have had something to sort of circle back to when I was ready, you know, and, and even just to be able to talk to her about it now, which I can and have her read this book and be like, oh, this was really painful, but I'm really proud of you, you know, like that feels like such a gift and it's not a requirement, you know, like I have witnessed the amazing sort of recoveries of women coming from all kinds of family backgrounds. It does just feel like a particular mercy and a gift to have had someone that that I've been able to come back to circle back to and have the kind of relationship I do have with her because I and it's interesting to hear you talk about your mom because I think yeah it just being the two of us for so much of the time we were so it just Mm -hmm. it was such a violent split it was such I had to you know really push really hard to sort of separate from her in that necessary way but oof it was not nice for either of us yeah yeah I left home really young as well and Mm -hmm. it was hard it wasn't until I think and it takes a while for us to get there because we're still like Mm -hmm. learning and growing up I must have been in my mid to late 20s and I started realizing what Anne had been doing at that age Mm -hmm. and that that involved me and I was like Mm -hmm. wow Mm -hmm. I couldn't I couldn't do that right and I got this new empathy and respect for her yeah, it's really true. I think as soon as I got, and this this may be true for a lot of people, you know, who have a relationship with their parents, but as soon as I hit the age my mother was when she had me, which was 25, suddenly there was like a little ghost child yes. that I was imagining be- because she had me. And so now I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> to have a, a 15 year, I just, it's a good tool in terms of really learning to sort of respect uh, the work and experience of definitely. our mothers, for sure. Definitely. I still find it really hard to find compassion for my younger self. And it is an ongoing process and I really I really try, but I think that shame and that having to unpick can be so difficult that it's mm. easier to just put it aside. And so I've got to say, without wanting to blow smoke up your ass, but I, I, girlhood has genuinely helped me look at some stuff mm. and think about that. So I just wanted to say thank you for taking care of you and for taking care of me oh. and for taking care of us. Oh, thank you so much. That that means so much to me, Mickey. You are who I was imagining when I was writing it, basically. You know, it was like someone like me that has been had these things sort of banging around inside their head for a really long time and 
for whom it would be helpful to see someone else's experience sort of laid out. Girlhood is published by Bloomsbury on July the 8th over in the UK. Melissa, what are you working on now? Well, I have a book of craft essays that are sort of essays about writing that's coming out next March, coming out in the US on March 22nd from Catapult, and it's coming out from the University of Manchester Press, I think shortly thereafter in the UK. And then I'm working on a book, a longer full-length book, kind of a another researchy memoir all about a year that I spent celibate and sort of female celibacy throughout history. You know, it'll be short and whimsical and fun and I'll probably get it right on the first try. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited. And I absolutely believe that last statement. <laughs> Me too. Where can people find out more about what you are up to? Oh, on my website, melissafibos.com or on Twitter at melissafibos. Melissa, thank you so, so much for chatting with me. Thank you, Mickey. Standard issue for all women.